Well, let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. Uh, if you're using one of our Bibles here that's in the back of the seat in front of you, it's on page 1151. That's the same address as the church. I noticed that this as I was preparing this. 1151 South Cedar Crest Boulevard. It's 1151 in the Bible. Matthew chapter 9. And we'll begin reading at verse 10. While you're turning there, I just want to um, uh, just remind us that we're in the middle of a, a special little series. We're taking a break from uh, one book of the Bible. And before we go into another book of the Bible, we're looking at something uh, topically. And um, someone, someone, some people uh, commented last week that, whoa, this is a little different than we're used to. And that's right. The way I'm going about it this week is a little, this, these six weeks is a little different, but it's okay. So um, different's okay for these six weeks, and then we'll get back to the regular. In Matthew uh, chapter 9, verse 10, it says, Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. Tax collectors were the ultimate of who was despised in that day. Verse 11, When the Pharisees saw this, They said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. Very interesting. Verse 12 again. But when Jesus heard this, he said, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. If you don't think that you're sick, you're not interested in the doctor. Well, he might be your friend. You might be interested in him in that sense. But as the doctor, if you're not thinking that you're sick, you're not interested in the doctor. But if you know that you are sick, you are very interested in the doctor. You want to see the doctor. Jesus uses that analogy there, sickness and a, and a physician. But, but the Pharisees who brought this up, this question, why, why, why is he eating with those people? Uh, they weren't talking about sickness. They were talking about sin. They were talking about sinners. You see that um, in verse 11. Why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners? And so Jesus, by using this analogy of sickness and, and, uh, and a physician... He's saying that the sickness is, that he's talking about is sin. And Jesus is the physician. If you don't think that you have a problem with sin, you are not interested in Jesus. But if you do think you have a problem with sin, you are desperately interested in Jesus. Do you, do you think that you're a sinner. That's a word, sin and sinner. Those are words that our, our culture doesn't use very often. And when we hear it used, uh, perhaps in the news uh, commentaries or whatever, it's usually in a mocking way. But the question is there, and it comes to us from the scripture. And my question, again, is, do you think you're a sinner? I want us to think this morning about this disease that Jesus is talking about. 
and about the people who have the disease, a little bit about that, and then about the physician. Let's think first of all about this disease of sin. What is sin? Do we really have it? Let's let God's word diagnose us, so to speak. There are three aspects to sin. And first of all, when you ask the question, well, what is this disease of sin? It's, it's, uh, first of all, it's, it's thoughts, words, and deeds that break God's law. Turn with me to Proverbs chapter 6, beginning at verse 16. This is on page 768. Proverbs 6, 16 to 19. <clears throat> I'm waiting as I hear your pages turn. Proverbs 6, 16. There are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. Here they come. He's going to list them. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, Feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. Did you notice again there in verse 16, though, before he gets to the list of things there, he he talks about God's response to these things. How is it that God looks at them? And it says the Lord hates these things. Very interesting. And then he uses a word that. Our, our society just doesn't use much anymore. It's the word abomination. It says there are six things that the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. What does that mean? What does that word abomination mean? Well, it's, uh, if you look it up in the dictionary, it just says it this way. It's a feeling of extreme disgust, hatred, loathing, abhorrence. That's what abomination is. And that's God's response. We have to understand this. That God's response to sin is he's extremely disgusted with it. And you'll note in the list, look again in verse 17. Just let your, eye, uh, r- your eyes run across 17, 18, 19. What, are the, what, what parts of life are encompassed with this short little list? You see, there's, it's not just actions, it's heart attitudes, haughty eyes, a proud, proud heart is the first thing that's mentioned. So heart attitudes are there. And then there are words mentioned, um, a false witness who utters lies, one who spreads strife among brothers, a lying tongue. There's actions, there's hands that shed innocent blood, there's feet that run uh, rapidly to eat to evil there's planning and musing in the heart that about things that are wrong all of this the, the our our thoughts and our words and our actions and the attitude of the heart all of that is when it's wrong that's all sin and it's all loathed by god it's contrary to God's nature. It's contrary to his to who he is. His his he in his goodness 
in his purity and perfection. You see, sin, sin is not sin because there's some arbitrary or uh, standard in the universe of what is right or wrong that even God is subject to. Sin is sin because of who God is and what sin is. God in, in himself, he is the standard. There, there's, not, there's not some external standard to him. He is it. And all that's on this list is contrary to him. It runs, it runs counter to all that he is. And he, you remember, he created us. He put us here on this earth. We owe everything to him. We owe our life, our existence. We owe it to him. And so then we have haughty eyes and a lying tongue. We shed innocent blood. We devise wicked plans. We run to do evil. We are false witnesses. We spread strife. And it's an abomination to God. And it's a breaking of his law. Just as a review, let's turn now back a little farther to Exodus chapter 20. This is on page 91. As you're turning there, we're we're going to the place that um, lists the Ten Commandments. God kind of took these ten rules, these ten commandments that it, 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 it shapes and forms our lives if we if we follow them but they we remember in obeying them it's an expression of what should a creature of this god who is the way he is how should this creature live they're expressing his will for us which and his will for us comes from within his own being who who he is since they're taking these this list of 10 out of public places, maybe you've forgotten what they are. Let's, let's remember them. Verse 3, and I'm not going to read every word in this, but I'm going to look at each of the ten. Verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. You see, there, um, there's going to be nothing else in my life, nothing else in your life that holds the ultimate loyalty. That when push comes to shove and you have to make hard decisions, whose will, who, who gets your vote, what pushes you to make the decision? Is it God and his will or is it something else? And especially, of course, the greatest God, little G, that runs competition for God, capital G, is right in here. It's myself, right? It's yourself. You do what you want to do. And in those decision points, you're saying by the way you go about your decisions that you're really the number one in your life, not God. But the first commandment is you'll have no other gods before me. Jesus once when he was questioned, they said, teacher, what's the greatest commandment? He said, the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength. And the second one is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. He took the ten and boiled it down to two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. When you wake up in the morning, so you first come out of your sleep and you first come to your conscious thought, is your mind 
and your heart filled with love for your creator, that that's where your mind goes and you're, you're filled with love of him. If not, you're sinning. Do I even need to go to the other nine? But let's go. Number The second one, in verse 4, you shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not worship them or serve them. Idols used in worship. God says, don't do that. Verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Surely the speaking of his name in cursing and swearing is involved here, but it's even bigger than that. It's claiming Christ claiming God as yours and then living in a way that's contrary to that. Verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Are all the days of the week actually the same for you? Verse 12, honor your father and your mother. Verse 13, you shall not murder. 14, you shall not commit adultery. 15, you shall not steal. 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Verse 17 in the 10th commandment, you shall not covet. Let me ask you something. Have you sinned? And then Jesus took this and turn with me to Matthew chapter 5 now. And he was speaking uh, from with the people. So it's Matthew 5, it's on uh, page 1145, verse 21, I'll, I'll read. In the Sermon of the Mount, he, he refers back and forth. He says, you've heard that it was said or that it was written by the ancients, this. And, and then Jesus says, I, I've not come to throw the law out. I've just come to fulfill it. I've come to help you see what it actually means. Oh, and if... and. Uh, If you somehow could listen to the Ten Commandments and think that you're okay, well, then let's listen to Jesus' commentary on those commandments. Verse 21, so it's Matthew 5, 21. Jesus says, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Jesus takes it down to the very court and he says, murder, the, the, the root of murder, the very essence of murder can be found in anger against your brother. At its essence, there in the center, it's the same thing. You're feeling self-righteous because you haven't actually killed somebody. But Jesus is saying, have you ever been angry at someone? Not a righteous anger. Most of our anger isn't. Look then at verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
You're feeling self-righteous because, well, you haven't committed the act of adultery. But Jesus looks further right into the heart and says, but it's the sin is so much greater than that. Sin is not just outward breaking of law, which it is. It goes down into the heart. The issue is down inside. Look at verse 31. It was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I, Jesus, I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. You can tell that that wasn't written by an American in the year 2011. But we're not reading what Americans wrote. We're reading what our Lord wrote and how he's interpreting the law to us, the law of the Old Testament. Look at verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. (laughs) But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus is trying to show us how sinful we actually are. And how far short we have actually fallen. Remember where we started? We started in Matthew 9 with Jesus' words. It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. And my friend, I want to ask you a question. Are you sick? Everybody is sick. We've all fallen short according to the word of God. But we're asking this question again. Well, what is this disease of sin? And I said there were three aspects and we've only touched on the first. It's, it's our thoughts and words and deeds that break God's law. That is sin. But there's also an inner disposition to disobey God. Listen to James 1, 13 to 16. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. That's James 1, 13 to 16. The temptation comes to us often. It's because there's something inside of us that is allured by the temptation. There's something in us that has a propensity to go that way. Now, it wasn't that way to start with, with Adam and Eve, and there's a question about that. I'm not going to get on that sidetrack. Well, then why were they tempted? Let's just not go there right now. But where we live right now, we all, as children and grandchildren of Adam and Eve, we've got this inner propensity. Theologians call it the sin nature. Where it's like gravity in us that pulls us to do what is wrong rather than right. And the scripture calls that sin. I mean, why, why is it that we need to teach our children not to lie, but to tell the truth? I never heard of anybody that had a problem. Pastor, I just can't get it through to my kid. They, I'm trying to get them to, to lie, and they just won't get it. Nobody ever says that. Why do we need laws to protect the powerless? Because without them, people will run to take advantage of them. Why do we need to be reminded of what is right and honorable, but not the other way around? Because in us, we've been corrupted on the inside. And that corruption leans us 
towards the wrong instead of the right. That's, that's part of our disease. And then third, a third aspect of what sin is, if that wasn't bad enough, sin is the debt that we owe to the justice of God. Listen to Romans 6.23. It starts this way. For the wages of sin is death. The wages. The actual, it calls the punishment. Death there is referring to a punishment from God. It's called a wage. A wage, I've said this before. Wage is something that, I've, that I earn. When, the, when you get your paycheck, when that paycheck comes, you don't, you don't just with overwhelming gratitude thank your boss. No, you, you just take it because you earned it. It's not a gift. And what God is saying in the scripture is through our actions and, and our words and our heart, through that inner propensity inside of us. You see, we owe a debt to the justice of God. And that debt means there's punishment coming towards us. God is a God of justice. It is who he is. How does the pure and holy and right God respond to the one who has decided over and over again to disobey him to live his or her own way, to walk the way they want to walk, to in essence shake their fist at their own creator. How does God respond to that? His justice must be satisfied. And he is not, as scripture says often, actually in the Old Testament, he will not be bribed. This judge is not one who can be swayed. Justice itself, unflinching justice will be satisfied. If it were not to be so, he would not be God. Justice must be satisfied. Punishment must be meted out to us. And that that punishment is the debt that we owe. And that debt in scripture and places, that's called sin. And just in case, in case you're wondering about this, because so many people, they, they want to think that, well, it's, it, God will just, it'll just be okay. But you know in your heart that it can't be that way. And, and this is why. You yourself have watched at times a criminal. You've seen it in the news that somebody who's done some heinous deed gets off or gets out of jail early, or, or, or there's even been some of that in the news recently. You've, you've seen it. And something inside of you says, that's not right. You see, if it's just little stuff, it's not, if it doesn't, it, you know, if the judge lets a guy off for a parking ticket, it doesn't bother you too much. But if he blows up a building or he, walks in somewhere with a gun and shoots 40 people. And the judge would say, you know, I'm just kind of feeling merciful today. Why don't you just get off? There's something inside of us that says, that isn't right. Why is that feeling inside of us? It's because it's the way the universe is and it's the way God is. And there's a piece of that in you. And you know in your heart that God to be God must satisfy his justice. And that, my friend, puts you in a very dangerous place because you are the one that owes the debt to the justice of God. Your sin, your sin 
must be paid for. Jesus said that he came for the sick. Do you realize that you are sick before God? Secondly, I want to think for a moment about the presumption of sinners. Not just the disease of sin, but the presumption of sinners. As bad as our condition is, we still think we're more or less okay. In Psalm 50, verse 21, listen to this. It says, God, after, after listing several sins of the, of the people of Israel, after talking about this is what you guys are doing, and this is what you're doing, and this is what you're doing, it gets to verse 21, an amazing verse. It says, these things, and this is God speaking, these things you have done, and I kept silence. You thought that I was just like you. I will reprove you. And state the case in order before your eyes. God withholds in his mercy. He withholds his judgment for a time. And so then we walk along and think, well, it's probably okay. I'm not getting spanked by God. Everything's okay. Maybe God's just like us. He's not really paying attention to me. He's not. This isn't really that bad. Because we don't see lightning bolts out of the sky on us right away. That's exactly what God was saying in Psalm 50. You thought that I was just like you. But then he says, I will reprove you and state the case in order before your eyes. People presume that we're just more or less okay. And there's five, at least five contributors to this presumption. And I want to list them for you. The first contributor to this presumption that, well, we're okay. I know we sin, but we're not perfect, but we're okay, is religion. And it can even be the church. The most religious people in Jesus' day were the Jews, and they had the right religion. It was the right one. And yet they rejected Christ. And when in Matthew chapter 3, verse 9, when Jesus was speaking to some of them, he says, Do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. See, they were, they were, they were resting on their religion. We're, we're, we're Jews. We're, we're okay. We got the right religion and we're, we're in it. And Jesus was standing right in front of them and they missed him. They were trusting in their religion instead of actually trusting in Jesus Christ. And so it goes today. You can be a part of any religion in the world. You can be part of a church. You can be part of Cedar Crest Bible Fellowship Church. And presume you're okay and not be okay. In addition to religion, another contributor to presumption is spiritual experiences. People having spiritual experiences. Listen to Matthew 7, 22 to 23. Many, Jesus speaks, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Some people have spiritual experiences. Their emotions are deeply touched. They're moved. And they may well have been spiritual experiences, but they were not of the truth. And the person trusting just in this experience of theirs may still miss Christ. 
And so they presume, I'm okay, I've had this experience, but they're missing Christ. Another contributor to presumption is self-love. Listen to Matthew 7, verse 3. Jesus said, you've heard this verse. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? We look around us and and, uh, we look at others and we're not concerned with ourselves. We're actually walking through life, (laughs) not actually taking a proper and and logical and clear-headed view of our own self. We're able to size other people up real well, but not ourselves. And so we presume, we go on in life and presume the disease must not be actually that bad. Another contributor to presumption is, and we've already drifted into it, a comparison with other people. Listen to Luke 18, beginning at verse 11. Jesus is telling this story. He says, the Pharisee, two two people went into the temple to pray. Now, Jesus is speaking. He says, the Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And then Jesus said, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. We compare ourselves to other people. Well, I'm not flying airplanes into the World Trade Center. I'm not a really bad guy. And so we compare ourselves to others. But all the while, God is saying, others are not the standard. God himself is the standard. And when you compare yourself to him, you become like the tax collector. Oh, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And behind all these contributors to presumption is Satan. Second Corinthians 4, verse 3 and 4. Paul says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing In whose case the God of this world, that's Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Behind all these other reasons is is the evil one, a personal evil force that's in the world, most of the time unseen to our physical eyes, but working all the while to deceive us And to keep us presuming that it's going to be all right. Because we know and we sense within us, in our heart, without even being told by others, that that there must be an accounting for my life someday to my creator. But we want to presume that it'll be all right. And Satan just fans those flames. Yeah, 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 it'll be okay. You're all right. You're all right. Don't, Don't get upset. You're okay. But the physician has diagnosed you and said, you're not okay. Not at all. Well, what? In closing, let's look at the physician and his cure. Remember, Jesus, he said, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. If you're here this morning, if you're listening and you realize that you're sick, this disease of sin is yours. 
then there's the physician and he's working in your life. As a matter of fact, the very fact, if you sense in your own heart that you're troubled over your own sin, that's God working in you. If you're frightened by, by this prospect that your, your thoughts and words and deeds are, are, are breaking God's law and you're, you're sinful, the inside heart of yours, you lean towards sin instead of towards righteousness. And then all of that means that you've got a debt to the justice of God. That's all sin. And that troubles you and alarms you. That alarm in your heart is God. The first thing the physician does is show you that you're sick. And that's God working in your life to to shake you, to make you realize that you're not well and you need to be made well. In our living over in Africa, we traveled through Europe. Most of the time it was Great Britain on the way there. And sometimes we would get some, well, there was a couple churches too that supported the work we were in and we would stop and visit them and so we had time to walk along little scottish or or english towns and a lot of the little shops had signs there would be signs um, painted signs um, advertising what kind of store they were and being england and scotland they had crests and things like that and a lot of them had lines in them so there was often you'd see a a sign with a painted lion and I would walk right under that sign and I wouldn't worry about it see the painted lion and go by later when I was in Africa I was standing in a field 30 yards from a lion like a real one my response to that lion was a lot different than my response to that painted lion and you can hear about sin but until that picture that God has given you of his diagnosis of you until it changes from the painted lion to the real lion you're going to die in your sin you have to understand it's not a painting this is real and the physician Jesus comes and he shows you that it's the first thing he does he shows you that so that you will Be alarmed and say, well, then, Lord Jesus, if this is true, how can I be made well? And then he applies to you his healing. You know, I quoted only the first part of a verse earlier this morning, Romans 6, 23. It starts for the wages of sin is death, but it ends. It goes on like this. It says, but the free gift of God is eternal life. In Jesus Christ, our Lord. You see, you see, we have earned punishment, but he offers a free gift of eternal life. And it's him. It's a free gift of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. It's nowhere else. It's not in the church. It's not in spiritual experiences. It's not in you doing a good job. It's in Christ Jesus. That's where the answer is. Because Christ Jesus went to the cross and on the cross he hung there in agony. And what was happening there in his pain on the cross was that God was placing the debt that you owe for your sin. He placed it on Christ and Christ paid your debt. Amen. And now he then says, 
Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, even rest for your souls. If you will go to Jesus Christ and place your faith in him, that transaction counts for you and you have forgiveness. You know, it's interesting. It says, but the free gift of God, the wages of sin is death. You earned that punishment. But the free gift, it's given to you freely. It was free for you. You don't pay for it, but it was not free to Jesus Christ. Remember what we said, the justice of God must be satisfied. And there on the cross, he satisfied the justice of God. So now God can have his justice satisfied and yet his love expressed to forgive you all at once. He doesn't forgive anyone at the expense of his justice. His son stood in for the one who's forgiven, satisfies the penalty. Now grace is offered to the sinner. If you will trust in Jesus Christ, you can have a free gift paid for by someone else. Are you sick? Are you sick this morning? Then go to Jesus Christ and trust him with your life. Trust him. Cast yourself upon him. There's no secret words to say. You in your heart just call out to him and say, I trust you. Give me this forgiveness. Heal me of this disease. Let's stand and pray, please. Oh, Father, we... We ask that your spirit would have your, your way in our lives. Open our eyes. Help us to see how desperately sick we are. And help us to see the great cure in Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, have your way among us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Lord bless you all.